Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us a stay our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's jump into the book of Sirach. Now we're going to be looking at the content of the book of Sirach. With that introduction done, we're going to be looking at the content of the book of Sirach. So turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Sirach. Now, a little bit of a review from last week of something that will help you in that regard. Where do you find it in your Bible? Well, if you open up your Bible right in the middle, you're usually going to be somewhere in the wisdom literature, okay? Somewhere right in the wisdom literature. If you open up your Bible over and over again, you're going to find it happens to be the wisdom literature is right in the middle the prophets are just to the right, so you might open up to the right, you get the prophets. Over to the left, you're in the wisdom literature. If you open up your Bible right in the middle, you're going to open up typically right to the book of Sirach. Now, if you find yourself in the wisdom literature, you want to turn right and go to the end of the wisdom literature. If you find yourself in the prophets, you want to turn left, go over a few pages till you get to the end of the wisdom literature section, and you'll find the book of Sirach. Now, if you're still struggling with finding the book of Sirach, it might be a name issue that we discussed last week. The book of Sirach goes by different names in different English translations. You might find it called the Wisdom of Ben Sirach, or you might find it called Ben Sirach, or you might find it called Sirach, or you might find it called Ecclesiasticus. Not to be confused with Ecclesiastes, which is an entirely different book. We talked about all of that last week and why there are all these different names for the book. So if you are interested in that, and you struggled finding the book due to a naming issue, you might want to review that lecture from last week. Okay, so we already discussed the prologue of this book in our introduction last week. We read this prologue, and now we're going to get into the content, which we just dipped into just for a taste of it last week. Now we're going to cover the content at least briefly. So turn with me to chapter 1 of the book of Sirach, chapter 1, verse 1. All wisdom comes from the Lord and is with him forever. So the book of Sirach in this first section, chapters 1 through 24, and, and even all the way up to uh, 44, you find that it's very similar to the book of Proverbs. If you've ever read the book of Proverbs, and if you haven't, you should do that this week. The book of Sirach, the first part of it, is very similar to the book of Proverbs. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't, you don't need to read it if you've read the book of Proverbs, because there are different Proverbs in here. Wonderful wisdom, as you're going to see as we look at this introductory scan through the text. So all this first section here, chapter 1, 
chapter 1 through about verse 15, 16, even down to verse 20. So the first half of chapter 1 is a praise of wisdom, a praise of wisdom. Then in verse Oh, about verse 14, and again, these, these sections overlap. I don't think the author intended different sections like this, but there's a tendency in verse 14 to the end of the chapter to talk about the fear of the Lord and the benefit therein. And then, of course, fear of the Lord doesn't end where we have chapter 2, but it kind of continues on in the rest of the book. So there are sections in the book, and then there are there are places where the, these there are sections that kind of blend into each other, not hard and fast sections. So there you won't find necessarily titles in your book of Sirach in many Bibles. But this first part, a praise of wisdom, and, and there's a, a topic that comes up that we briefly touched on last week that I want to talk about now. All wisdom comes from the Lord and is with him forever. The sand of the sea, the drops of the rain, the days of eternity, who can count them? The height of heaven, the breadth of the earth, the abyss and wisdom, who can search them out? Wisdom was created before all things. So, first issue, wisdom was created. Now, you have to let this be poetry, okay? This is poetry. This is Hebrew poetry. And just like English poetry that you're probably familiar with, you can't take it flat-footed word for word, okay? It's intended to be very rich poetry. Now, the, what does it mean that wisdom was created? If you actually take that literally, you have a major theological and philosophical problem. That would mean that there was a time when God was not wise. Because we're not talking about earthly wisdom here. We're talking about divine wisdom. The wisdom that we're discussing here in chapter 1 is God's wisdom that he shares with man. So if God created his own wisdom, there would be a time when he was not wise. So how would he know how to create something that is wiser than him? That doesn't make any sense, right? So. The, the word created here comes from the Greek text. In the Hebrew, in the wisdom literature, you'll hear a number of places. If you look in your English translations where or wisdom is said to be created. And in the Greek, the word there, katizin in Greek, means to create, to be created. Okay, so it gets translated that way, and that's fine. But if you look in the context What's being said there in that, in that section always is that wisdom existed before all creation. So it's trying to show you that wisdom came from God, was created by God, if you want to use that word, before he created everything. That's the point of the text. Every place where you hear about wisdom being created, if you look in the text, it's always showing you that it was before God created everything else. Okay, so they, they say he, wisdom was created and through wisdom, God created the world. Well, again, if you take that literally, that idea that God created wisdom, you got a problem. So it's trying to make a, a, a theological point with this poetic way of speaking that before creation, wisdom was created, or wisdom was created before all creation. That is to say, wisdom existed before all the things that you know of in creation. That's the main thrust of, the, of what it's trying to say. If you go back to the Hebrew, of the, in the wisdom literature of Proverbs and Sirach and the others, you find the word here is kana in the Hebrew. It's a verb which means to possess or purchase. And so in, in this particular case, you can put possess. God possessed wisdom, or wisdom was possessed by God. He had wisdom before he created. That's the Hebrew way of saying it. 
But in the Greek, you get this create the word created there, the translation of kana to possess or have, to emphasize that idea that it's the it's before all creation. So it actually uses the word creation as well. Anyway, it might be a little confusing for you, but as long as you understand the context, wisdom was created before all things. You see that? You're never going to get it say wisdom was created, but God was not, or something like that. It's some sort of a contrast. Whenever you see a reference to wisdom is created, it's going to say before all things, before all creation. It's trying to make a point that wisdom pre-existed creation. Now, if you know John's prologue, you think, wait a minute. That's like the word of God before all creation. Yeah, that's the whole point. In the wisdom literature, the wisdom of God is the word of God. It's one and the same. And we'll talk about that in a second. Now, the other issue I want to look at with you is the gender of the noun. So let's keep reading here. Wisdom was created before all things, and prudent understanding from eternity. Now, here's the other thing I want you to notice, and that is synonymous parallelism. Synonymous parallelism. I mentioned this last week. When we want to speak poetically in English, we use rhyme and rhythm. Hebrew doesn't do that. Hebrew poetry uses what's called synonymous parallelism or antithetical parallelism, but it's not as common. And that is to say the exact same thing in two very different ways. They love it. Like we like rhyme, that's what they like. When they start doing that, they know they're into poetry. And so here's an example, and it's very helpful to see that because then it can help you interpret something like this. Wisdom was created before all things. That is to say, prudent understanding from eternity. Do you see that? Prudent understanding is wisdom. Before, before all things, eternity. Do you see how that works? So wisdom is eternal in the wisdom literature. It had no origin, aside from it comes from God, of course, from all eternity. Okay, so verse 6, the root of wisdom, to whom has it been revealed? Her clever devices, who knows them? Now, notice the word her there. There is one who is wise, greatly to be feared, sitting upon his throne. The Lord himself created wisdom. He saw her and apportioned her. He poured her out upon all his works. She dwells with all the flesh according to his gift, and he supplied her to those who love him. The fear of the Lord is glory and exaltation, and gladness a crown of rejoicing. The fear of the Lord delights in her. So now we're getting into the fear of the Lord section, but it's not done with the phrase of wisdom. Verse 14, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You know that from Proverbs 9.10, so it's a lot of sharing in the Proverbs. She is created with the faithful in the womb. Now, again, if you take that literally, that wisdom is created at the moment the faithful are born in the womb, then wisdom would be constantly being created and would have moments when it didn't exist, right? So it doesn't make any sense. It's trying to say that when, when the faithful are born in the womb, from the moment the child of, of faithful parents comes into existence, it is already, and St. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, is already blessed by God. Already, in some way, there's a special grace given there. So again, she, she, she. Now let's talk about that other issue very briefly here. We'll come back to it later. In Hebrew, we talked about this last week, there is a, gen, there is a male and female gender to all words. All nouns are either male or female. What does that mean? What that means is when you have to pick a pronoun, after you say the main noun, in the next line, you've got to use a pronoun. We do this in all languages. We say a noun, you know, proper noun, like a name. And then the next line, as we keep going along, we throw in a pronoun because it's usually very short and fast in most languages. So, the man went to the store. He bought bread. He checked out, and then he went home. All languages work this way. We use pronouns. 
Okay, because they're usually very short or very, very quick in, in the language. So Hebrew does the same thing. It gives you a noun, and then it starts throwing in the pronoun. Now, because wisdom is a feminine word in Hebrew, the pronoun is she, and that comes out in English. And so you might think, well, man, wisdom is female then. No, no, don't, don't think like that. English is basically a non-gender language. Almost all nouns in English are it. If you want to switch out the noun to a pronoun, we're going to throw in it for almost every English word to, in modern English. Not old English, but modern English. Now, the only time gender is preserved in modern English is when we talk about male and female natural gender, like a boy or a girl, man or a woman, things like that. Bob versus Sue. He versus she. We do that, right? But when we talk about a car, unless you really like your car, it's an it. Okay, when we talk about a tree or a rock or a mountain, it's it, 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 it. But in Hebrew, it's he or she, he or she, he or she, okay? Don't then import into that image gender, okay? Natural gender. All right, so then, it's just the problem of English versus Hebrew. Now, with that in mind, now that we've knocked that out aside, that means don't think of wisdom as necessarily as a woman, though sometimes because of the grammatical gender, it will become a literary device in the, in the wisdom literature. And I say this because as you find, as you read through the wisdom literature, you find that the wisdom of God is also the word of God. And John will make a very clear point in his prologue that the references to the wisdom of God and the word of God and the wisdom literature are fulfilled in Jesus. Okay, Jesus is the word of God that is the wisdom of God, one and the same. Okay, so I just want to make sure you don't take the thing too far, that gender thing. Okay, now, as you read the rest of Sirach, there's a lot of wonderful sections. I strongly encourage you to read them. We're just going to kind of skim through these and the most important ones. Look at chapter 2. The duties toward God. My son, if you come forward to serve the Lord, prepare yourself for temptation. Set your heart right and be steadfast, and do not be hasty in time of calamity. Cleave to him, and do not depart, that you may be honored at the end of your life. Accept whatever is brought upon you, and in changes that humble you, be patient, for gold is tested in the fire, and acceptable to men in the furnace of humiliation. Trust in him, he will help you, make your way straight, and hope in him. So you continue reading through chapter 2, and it continues with this theme of, Man's duty toward God, which basically is trust in him like a loving father, and he will care for you, and be patient, and wait on the Lord. The summary, that's what you in the chapter. Chapter 3, you come to the duties towards parents. Duties towards parents. Listen to me, your, your father, O children, and act accordingly that you may be kept in safety. For the Lord honored the father above children. He confirmed the right of the mother over her sons. Whoever honors his father atones for sins, and whoever glorifies his mother is like one who lays up treasure. Whoever honors his father will be gladdened by his own children, and when he prays, he will be heard. Whoever glorifies his father will have long life, and whoever obeys the Lord will refresh his mother. He will serve his parents as his masters. Honor your father by word and deed, that a blessing from him may come upon you. For a father's blessing strengthens the houses of the children, but a mother's curse uproots their foundations. Don't make your mom mad. Do not glorify yourself by dishonoring your father. For your father's dishonor is no glory to you. For a man's glory comes from honoring his father. 
And it is a disgrace for children not to, disrespect, not to respect their mother. O oh, son, help your father in his old age. Do not grieve him as long as he lives. Even if he is lacking in understanding, show forbearance. In all your strength, do not despise him. For kindness to a father will not be forgotten against, against your sins. It will be credited to you. In the day of your affliction, it will be remembered in your favor. As frost and fair weather, your sins will melt away. Whoever forsakes his father is like a blasphemer. Whoever angers his mother is cursed by the Lord. So here's an example of something I said to you before, that the wisdom literature, Sirach, Proverbs, etc., is written first and foremost for a, a young man going out into the world to maintain what he learned from his parents, and now what's he going to go out there and do with it? To go out and find a good wife versus go out and find a prostitute. Go out and find a good job rather than going and following worthless pursuits. Go out and pursue the word of the Lord rather than wickedness. Find good, virtuous friends rather than wicked friends. And so the book of Proverbs, the book of Sirach, the book of Wisdom, Ecclesiastes, they all say basically the same thing. And this is why they're so valuable for our young people. And for adults today, of course, as well. We can all benefit from this and reminders. But, but the, the young people, this is a great resource for our, our, our youth groups, for our young adult groups, for newlyweds, well, even especially before they're wedded. There's some great advice here about finding the right kind of spouse, a virtuous spouse, rather than looking for earthly beauty. The book of Proverbs says, like a gold ring and a swine's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Right? So I love that proverb. It's a wonderful, wonderful image that beauty is something internal first and foremost. Exterior beauty fades away. It's like a gold ring and a swine's snout, a beautiful woman without discretion. Okay, so it gives that, that direction to that young man. Look for the virtuous wife. And this could apply then also to a young woman going out of the world. We have young women going off to college and jobs and things like that and careers. So this is also just as applicable to any young woman's life. All right. So then in chapter 3, verse 17 following, you have a, a section about humility. And I don't have time to look at all these with you, but we're just I'm going to highlight some of this for you. Chapter 4, a section about the poor. My son, deprive not the poor of his living. Do not keep needy eyes waiting. Do not grieve one who is hungry, nor anger a man in want. Do not add to the troubles of an angry mind, nor delay your gift to a beggar. Do not reject an afflicted suppliant, nor turn your face away from the poor. Do not avert your eyes from the needy. It goes on. You probably have heard that. Do not turn your face away from the poor. That's Tobit 4.7. As you read through Sirach, you're going to hear a lot of very similar language that you find in the other books of the Old Testament, in the wisdom literature as well, but also in the New Testament, as we'll see. Verse 11, wisdom exalts her sons and gives help to those who seek her. Whoever loves her loves life. And it goes on. So it's a, the reward of seeking wisdom above all things. All right. And again, lots of other wonderful proverbs here. I wish we could look at them all together. But I encourage you to read the book on your own and see these sections. Uh, a section about wisdom again here, chapter 6, verse 18. My son, from your youth up, choose instruction. And until you are old, you will keep finding wisdom. 
Come to her like one who plows and sows and wait for her good harvest. For in her service, it will toil a little while and soon you will eat of her produce or its produce. It seems very harsh to the uninstructed. A weakling will not remain with it. It, I'm switching to a neuter here in English for it. It will weigh him down like heavy testing stone and he will not be slow to cast it off. For wisdom is like, her name and is not manifest to many. Listen, my son, accept my judgment. Do not reject my counsel. Put your feet into her fetters and your neck into her collar. We'll see this later on in the book of Sirach. Jesus says this in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Take my yoke upon you. It is easy and light. So you will find also, if you know your New Testament well, you go back to the book of Sirach, you're going to hear a lot of Sirach New Testament. I know of uh, one scholar who was working on his dissertation on, on the use of the book of Sirach in the Gospel of Matthew and the rest of the New Testament, printed in the Gospel of Matthew. So a lot of it in the New Testament, if you know your book of Sirach well. Chapter 7, do, not, do no evil and evil will never befall you. Stay away from wrong and it will turn away from you. That sounds like James 4, 7. Verse 14, do not prattle in the assembly of the elders, nor repeat yourself in your prayer. That's Matthew 6, 7. By the way, the individual who was doing the dissertation on, on Sirach in the book of, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, is a Methodist. I said, don't, what, what do you, don't, you don't even have Sirach in your Bible. Remember, it's not in the Protestant Bible. He said, yeah, I know. I said, well, how as a Methodist are you doing a, a, a dissertation on Sirach in the Gospel of Matthew? Isn't that problematic for you? He said, what am I going to do? It's all over the Gospel of Matthew. All right. Uh, verse 19, do not deprive yourself of a wise and good wife, for her charm is worth more than gold. Chapter 8, I'm just giving you some the, the nice proverbs from the section. Chapter 8, verse Five, do not reproach a man who is turning away from sin. Remember that we all deserve punishment. There's a temptation often for us. We find someone who is repenting of a, of a wayward life, and we get impatient with them. I always remember this proverb. When I, when I start to, you know, someone, I'm wishing somebody would maybe change their life a little faster, you know? You know, they're, they're repenting, they're starting to come to church, and they, and they're, but they're, they're, they, they keep slipping up a little bit, but they're working on it. And I always think of this proverb, do not reproach a man when he is turning away from sin, right? Be patient. We all deserve punishment for our sin. All right, a lot more wonderful proverbs here. So let's turn then, and let's turn over to one last section of Proverbs, and then we'll get into chapter 24. So this is chapter 21 and 22. There's a whole section here about the fool, the man who does not have wisdom. So the book is trying to instruct the young man in getting wisdom, and then it also tells him how to deal with people who have no wisdom nor want it. So when you get out there in the world, you're going to deal with people who don't want to hear wisdom. So how do you deal with that? And he says in chapter 22, verse 7, he who teaches a fool is like one who glues potsherds together or who rouses a sleeper from deep slumber, right? You, you ever broken something like a vase or a, a cup and you want to try and glue it together? Well, it doesn't really go together the way it went before. It doesn't really look like it did, and you're surely not going to put any hot water in that cup, right? So it, it's, it's basically a waste of your time to glue together a beautiful, you know, vase or coffee cup that someone gets because it's not going to be what it was. 
So he says that teaching a fool is like trying to glue potsherds together. Okay, it's a worthless endeavor, or it's like rousing a sleeper from deep slumber. He who tells a story to a fool tells it to a drowsy man. And at the end he will say, huh, what, what is it he said? Weep for the dead, for he lacks the light, and weep for the fool, for he lacks intelligence. That goes on. Okay, and there's more about the fool here. Okay, now, chapter 24. Chapter 24 is a very, very important section of this book. If you don't remember anything else out of this book, remember chapter 24 of this book, okay? Please make sure you remember more than that. Wisdom will praise herself. This is the longest uh, hymn of wisdom or about wisdom in the book. The whole big long section about wisdom. And I want you to look at this because it really fills out a lot of information about wisdom in the Old Testament and then in the New. So wisdom will praise herself and will glory in the midst of her people. In the assembly of the Most High, she will open her mouth. In the presence of the Most she will she will glory. I came forth from the mouth of the Most High. I came forth from the mouth of the Most High. So what is that? The wisdom is the word of God. Do you see that? And covered the earth like a mist. I dwelt in high places. My throne was a pillar of cloud. I alone have made the circuit of the vault of heaven and have walked in the depths of the abyss. In the waves, the sea, and the whole earth, every people and nation, I have gotten a possession. Among all these, I sought a resting place. I sought in whose territory I might launch. So that's called natural wisdom. Right? God created the world, and through the world, through the creation, man is able to perceive what's called natural revelation, natural revelation of the Word of God. So you look at a beautiful hummingbird and a beautiful hibiscus flower. You look at a beautiful waterfall, a babbling brook, and a massive tree, and a mountain, and the ocean, and you say, wow. And you learn something about God. You can't put your finger on but you learn something about the glory and beauty and wonder of God. That's called natural revelation. And from it comes natural law. If there's a creator of all of this, someone must have created all So there must be a creator. And therefore, you can look at natural creation. You can look at creation. And through natural revelation, this wisdom you can gather, you can gather certain principles. That's called natural law, certain basic rights and wrongs. Okay, so all of creation, all the nations all have in some way some of this, right? Because they all can look and see waterfalls and hummingbirds and things like that. And so if you look in the wisdom literature of even pagan nations, you'll find sometimes a little bit of a wise saying. I think it's Confucius that was famous when those Proverbs were saying, if your only tool is a hammer, you'll approach every problem as if it's a nail. Hmm, I like that. Okay, there you'll find that kind of wisdom. Paul quotes some of this in the in the New Testament. Okay, some pagan wisdom, but it's places where the pagans, because they're in the same created world, are able to perceive some elements of truth from what is around them. Okay, there's also lots of air mixed in from their their erroneous religions, but there's some elements of truth there. All right, so that's called natural revelation. So because of creation. Wisdom, or the Word of God, has been revealed to all of mankind in some way, a rudimentary way. And then it says, but I sought in whose territory I might lodge, in a kind of a, a special way. And then the Creator of all things gave me a commandment. The one who created me, or possessed me, or had me from all eternity, however you want to translate that, assigned a place for my tent. He said, make your dwelling in Jacob and Israel, receive your inheritance from eternity in the beginning, 
He created me. Again, from eternity in the beginning, he created me. So wisdom was before all things. But God said at a certain point, I want you to dwell in Jacob. He says, and for eternity I shall not cease to exist. So wisdom is, was from the beginning and will be for all eternity. So you get this eternal existence of wisdom, the word of God. In the holy tabernacle I ministered before him. So I was established in Zion, in Jerusalem. I took root in an honored people. So the word of God was revealed to mankind in a special way called special revelation at Mount Sinai, right, in the meeting tent. And then finally, that was gave a permanent resting place in Jerusalem, in the temple, which is what we heard here poetically. And then it says in verse 19, Come to me, wisdom says, you who desire me, and eat your fill of my produce. For the remembrance of me is sweeter than honey, and my inheritance sweeter than the honeycomb. Those who eat me will hunger for more, and those who drink me will thirst for more. Now, if you know your Bible well, you think, I've heard something like that. Jesus says, they who come to me will never hunger, never thirst. Why? In the Gospel of John, Jesus has been revealed as the wisdom, the word of God from all eternity that has come to dwell among man in a very special way, not just the tabernacle, not just the temple, but now to dwell among man in a human tent, in a, in a human nature. So the prologue of John plays heavily off of the wisdom literature's references to wisdom. Most people don't perceive that because they don't know the wisdom literature. This is an example of this. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus is shown to be the fullness of the wisdom. The wisdom was given through Moses in the Old Testament, yes, in a, again, a rudimentary way. Almost like what was given in natural revelation, but now in special revelation, but only like the hors d'oeuvres of a meal. Okay? It's a foretaste of the thing. But... Jesus comes, the word of God comes, and now the revelation of God's word comes in the fullness. And so one of the themes of the Gospel of John, we've studied this in the ICC, a whole lecture on the Gospel of John, is, is that Jesus is the full revelation of the word of God. And so you get throughout the Gospel of John these references to the fullness, to the fullness over and over. Even when Jesus does work signs, like the, they filled the water jugs to the brim. Right, and then he turned them into wine. The theme throughout the gospel. Okay, so it says, "Whoever obeys me will not be put to shame, and those who work with my help will not sin." Verse twenty-three. All this is the book of the covenant of the Most High. The book of the covenant of the Most High, the Torah, which Moses commanded us as an inheritance for the congregation of Jacob. So what's the wisdom of God? It's the word of God. What's the word of the wisdom of God? It's the Torah. Okay, what God gave them. And I'll say, although in the New Testament, this comes in the fullness, full revelation. It fits peace shown like the Tigris at the time of the first fruits. It makes them full of understanding like the Euphrates, like the Jordan, like Gihon. Look at verse 30. I went forth like a canal from a river and like a water channel into a garden. I said, I will water my orchard and drench my garden plot. And lo, my canal became a river and my river became sea. I will again make instruction shine forth like the dawn. I will make it shine, forth, shine afar. I will again pour out teaching like prophecy and leave it to all future generations. So this is why the 
why you have the reference to paradise here in the title of the lecture tonight, because in the end, wisdom or the word of God is intended to bring mankind back into the Garden of Eden, back into paradise. And of course, that's what Jesus does in the New Testament. He brings us back into paradise. In the Old Testament, the word of God slowly directs man's, man's attention back toward paradise. In the New Testament, through baptism, we enter back into the Garden. Uh, if you know Ezekiel 47, by the way, this is the same image here, the word of God flowing forth from the temple to educate all mankind in the new covenant. All right, now turn with me over to chapter 38. You have another section. There's a lot more Proverbs, uh, but now you have another section I want to look at with you. Chapter 38 and 39. Chapters 38 and 39 is directing the young man about career moves. All right, what are you going to do? What major are you going to choose when you get into college? Okay, they didn't have colleges, but this is that, that young man trying to figure out life. And so the, the author here says, hey, look, here's some, let me make some suggestions for you, okay, of some really great career moves. It says in chapter 38, honor the physician with honor due him according to your need of him, for the Lord created him. For healing comes from the Most High, and he will receive a gift from the king. The skill of the physician lifts up his head in the presence of great men he is admired. The Lord created medicines from the earth, and a sensible man will not despise them. Was not water made sweet with a tree in order that his power might be known? That's the story of Moses. And he gave skill to men that he might be glorified in his marvelous works. By them he heals and takes away pain. The pharmacist makes them a compound. His works will never be finished. And from him health is upon the face of the earth. My son, when you are sick, do not be negligent, but pray to the Lord and he will heal you. Give up your faults and direct your hand to right and cleanse your heart from all sin. It goes on. You're talking about the, the, the great honor of being a physician in this society. Chapter 38, verse 24. But there's another one. Here's another career option. The wisdom of the scribe depends on the opportunity of leisure. And he who has little business may become wise. How can he become wise who handles the plow? Or who glories in the shaft of a goad, who drives oxen, is, is occupied with their work, and whose talk is about bulls. He sets his heart upon plowing furrows, and he is careful about fodder for his heifers. So he says, look, a scribe's not a bad option either, guy. Okay, look, the, this physician, very nice, but a scribe is a nice option because a scribe is a professional reader and writer. And by being a professional copyist of books and professional reader for people, he can sit there and learn, he can gain wisdom, right? So a scribe is, in the ancient world, is considered a very wise man because his whole life is about reading and writing what people have said. All right, so there's the scribe. And he says, he says, verse 27, so too is every craftsman and master workman who labors by night as well as by day. Those who cut the signets of seals, each is diligent in making a great variety. He sets his heart on painting a life-like image. Verse 28, so too is the smith sitting by the anvil, intent upon his handiwork in iron. He goes on and on. Verse 29, so too is the potter sitting at his work and turning the wheel. Verse 31, all these rely upon their hands, and each is skillful in his own work. Without them, a city cannot be established. 
and men can neither sojourn nor live there. So you've got to have a plowman. You've got to have a craftsman. You've got to have the smith, the potter. You've got to have these. They're very important. He says a city can't exist, a society can't exist without all of these wonderful gifts that men give to, to each other through their skills. But then he says, verse 13, yet they are not sought after in the council of people, nor do they attain eminence in the public assembly. They do not sit in the judge's seat, nor do they understand the sentence of judgment. They come expound discipline or judgment, and they're not found using Proverbs, but they keep stable the fabric of the world. So they're critical for society. And he says, these are all nice and very important, honorable careers, son. But let me give you another option. Verse 39. On the other hand, he who devotes himself to the study of the Torah of the Most High will seek out the wisdom of all the ancients. He will be concerned with prophecies. He will preserve the discourse of notable men and penetrate subtleties of parables. He will seek out the hidden meanings of proverbs and be at home with the obscurities of parables. He will serve among great men and appear before rulers. He will travel through lands of foreign nations where he tests the good and the evil. He will set his heart to rise early to seek the Lord who made him and will make supplication before the Most High. He will open his mouth in prayer and make supplication for his sins. If the great Lord is willing, he will be filled with the spirit of understanding. He will pour forth words of wisdom, etc., etc. So what he encourages the young man to do then, he says is, above all, son, study the word of God. Okay? And so this is a wonderful lesson for all of us. Whatever your career is in life, okay? Whether you're a, a teacher, a plowman, a smith, uh, a, a doctor, anything, we all are able to study the Word of God. And through the ICC and having your, your, your own personal copy of the Bible, we are at a point in history which makes this so easy that the ancient man could not do. So I encourage you strongly, take these lectures to heart, and please read the book of Sirach. You're at a point in history when you can actually do that. You go back just 100 years ago, literacy was only around 1% of society. Okay, 1%, that was the scribe, the reader and the writer. You wouldn't own a book because you couldn't read it. You couldn't afford a book just a couple centuries ago without a printing press. Okay, so we're at a unique opportunity in history. Please take every advantage of that. Turn me to chapter 44. Let us now praise famous men and our fathers in their generations. The Lord apportioned them to great glory, his majesty from the beginning. There were those who ruled in their kingdoms and were men renowned for their power, give counsel by their understanding and proclaiming prophecies. This is a wonderful section. This is chapters 44 through 50. It's a praise of the wise men of salvation history. Okay, so let's look at an example of this that starts out. Uh, chapter 44, verse 16. That's the first name you get. Enoch pleased the Lord and was taken up. He was an example of repentance to all generations. This is back in early part of Genesis. Noah was found perfect and righteous. In the time of wrath, he was taken in exchange. There were a remnant was left to the earth. Verse 19, Abraham was the great father of a multitude of nations, and no one has been found like him in glory. Verse 22, Isaac, also he gave the same assurance for the sake of Abraham his father, the blessing of all men, and the covenant he made to rest upon the head of Jacob. He acknowledges him with his blessing. 
And if you know Genesis, you're able to follow this, right? Chapter 45. From his descendants, the Lord brought forth a man of mercy who found favor in the sight of all flesh and who beloved by God and man, Moses, whose memory is blessed. He made him equal in glory to the holy ones. He's like an angel and made him great in the fears of his enemies. By his words, he caused signs to cease and the Lord glorified him in the presence of kings. Verse 6. He exalted Aaron, the brother of Moses, a holy man like Levi, the tribe of Levi. He made an everlasting covenant with him. Verse 23. Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, is the third in glory, for he was zealous in fear of the Lord. You remember that in Numbers 25, the zeal of Phineas, a great story. Verse 25. A covenant was also established with David, the son of Jesse, the tribe of Judah. Chapter 46. So he jumps over to David for a second, and he jumps back to his salvation history flow. Chapter 46, Joshua, the son of Nun, was mighty in war and was the successor of Moses in prophesying and became in accordance with his name, a great savior of God's elect. I've told you another lecture, remember, Joshua, Yehoshua means Yahweh saves, right? Verse 7, don't forget Caleb. In the days of Moses, he did a loyal deed. He and Caleb, the son of Yifune. So there's Joshua, now Caleb. Now what comes next? You know your salvation history. The judges, right? Verse 11, the judges also with their respective names, those whose hearts did not fall into idolatry, and the greatest of all judges, and the last of them, verse 13, Samuel, beloved by the Lord, a prophet of the Lord, established the kingdom and anointed rulers. You know, Samuel's the one who anointed the first Christ, the first Messiah, right? Saul, and then he also anointed David. But Samuel eventually died, and chapter 47, after him, Nathan rose up to prophesy in the days of David as the fattest selected from the peace offering. So David was selected from the sons of Israel. So it was on and on about David. But then, verse 12, and after him rose up a wise son whose fair, uh, who fared amply because of him. Solomon reigned in the days of peace. Solomon means peace, as you know. So now we talk about Solomon for a very long time. But Solomon, you know, at the end, things there were some problems, and his son Rehoboam took over. So look at verse 23. Solomon rested with his fathers and left behind him one of his sons, ample in folly, lacking in understanding. So there's Solomon the wise man, Rehoboam the, the fool. Rehoboam, whose policy caused the people to revolt, also Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. So remember that north and the south then split because of Rehoboam in the south, Jeroboam in the north. You ICC members know all of salvation histories. You're able to follow this. Then we get into the age of the prophets. Chapter 48, then the prophet Elijah arose like fire and his word burned like a torch. And then we hear about the wonders of Elijah. Look at verse 10. You who are ready at the appointed time, it is written to calm the wrath of God before it breaks out in fury and turn the hearts of the Father to the Son. Where is that written? That's written in Malachi, right? Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, that Elijah will return. There's another way you can date the book. A reference to the, being written that Elijah's going to return. We already talked about the date in the book, right around 180, 185, somewhere there. Okay. Malachi is about 490. Verse 12. It was Elijah who was covered by the whirlwind and Elisha was filled with his spirit. So then you go down to Elisha. And now you're going to talk about the other prophets. And the other prophets come, of course, most importantly, during the time of, of great king Hezekiah. Verse 11, Hezekiah fortified a city and brought water in the midst of it. Right? He tunneled under. Verse 20, 
And they called upon the Lord who was merciful, and he you know, wiped out the Assyrians and delivered them by the hand of Isaiah, the prophet, right? So there's Isaiah. Now after that, chapter 49, there's Josiah, the memory of Josiah. Oh, Josiah is like a blending of incense prepared by the art of the perfumer. The name of Josiah is as sweet as honey to every mouth. It's like a banquet, right? Now, if you don't know who Josiah is, then it's not going to have that effect, right? you got to know who Josiah is. When you hear Josiah, oh, Josiah, the great, the great king. Chapter 49, verse 4. Except David, Hezekiah, and Josiah, they all sinned greatly, right? All the kings were, they were all worthless, but but these three were the monotheists. Now, Asa was a pretty good guy, but he didn't make it into the top three. But so David, Hezekiah, and Josiah, the great three kings who were monotheists. But there were also other important people. Verse 6, Jeremiah the prophet. Verse 8, Ezekiel, who had the vision of the glory of God upon the cherubim. Verse 11, how shall we magnify Zerubbabel? He was like a signet on the right hand. Verse 12, and so was Yeshua, the high priest, during the time of the return with Zerubbabel. You know this from Ezra. And then verse 12, the memory of Nehemiah also is lasting. He raised for us the walls that had fallen. Okay, you know the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. And then he now takes a reverse and starts going back in salvation history like a chiasm. Verse 14, no one like Enoch has been created on earth, for he was taken up from the earth. Verse 15, no man like Joseph has been born and his bones are cared for. Verse 16, Shem, Seth were honored among men and Adam above every living being in creation. Why? Because he was the first one. <laughs> so chapter 50 now, he now concludes with the new Adam, that is the high priest. He talks about Simon the high priest. Now this is one of those ways in which we can date the book. Simon the high priest, this is Simon son of Johanan, or Onias, who died right around 196. So you can date the book to sometime after that. He speaks of him in that kind of a glorious way. All right, so the leader of the brethren and the pride of his people was Simon the high priest, son of Onias, who in the, his life repaired the, repaired the house and in his time fortified the temple. He laid the foundation for the high double walls and the high retaining walls for the temple enclosure, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Verse 5, how glorious he was when the people gathered around him as he came out of the inner sanctuary. Like the morning star among the clouds, like the moon when it is full, like the sun shining upon the temple of the Most High, and like the rainbow gleaming in glorious clouds, like roses in the days of the first fruits. He's talking about the glorious, the, the beautiful image of him coming through, the, through out of the sanctuary, out of the temple shining with the glory of God, verse 11, and robed in God's glory, right? Clothed in beautiful priestly garments. All right, so that's the that's a high priest, and he goes on and on. We don't have time to read all that description. You can do it on your own. It's a beautiful description and a conclusion to this hymn about wise men of salvation history. I encourage you strongly to read the section on your own. All right, so now the book comes to a close here. Look at chapter 50. <laughs> it also talks about those who were not so wise. Chapter 50 concludes, we look at verse 25. With two nations my soul is vexed, and the third is no nation. 
those who live in Mount Seir and the Philistines and the foolish people that dwell in Shechem. So the Samaritans. So these people who do not keep the Torah, so at least not properly. He also talks about a frustration of his time that there's all these nations around that have not fully walked in the ways of the Lord. Highly unlike all of the great men he just spoke of. This hymn of wise men closes at verse 26. And then we have a, a we come to the end of the book. This is chapter 50, verse 27. Instruction, this is the epilogue, in understanding and knowledge I have written in this book. I, Jesus, the son of Sirach, son of Eleazar, or this, the order is different in some ways, Jesus, son of Eleazar, son of Sirach. Depends how you want to read them. So this is, remember we talked about this last week. If you just read that and you said, what, Jesus wrote a book? You missed last week's lecture, okay? This is Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua is a common name in the Bible. This is not Jesus of Nazareth, okay? So this is Jesus, the author of the book, writing to his disciples that they may attain the wisdom that he's attained. All right, so now let's jump to the very end of the book here, and we'll close with this. This is chapter 51, verse 13. Chapter 51, verse 13. The, the section we just skipped is another, a praise of wisdom and thanksgiving. You can look it on your own. Chapter 51, verse 13. You get a nice little historical hymn here or background. While I was still young, before I went on my travels, I sought wisdom openly in my prayer. Before the temple, I asked for her. Remember, we talked about this man. Was, he dwelt in Jerusalem, and he, uh, right around 180, he died, or he wrote the book around it. Before the temple, I asked for her, and I will search for her to the last. From blossom to ripening grape, my heart delighted in her. My foot entered upon the straight path from my youth. I followed her steps. I inclined my ear a little and received her, and I found for myself much instruction. I made progress therein to give who gives me wisdom. I will give him glory, for I resolved to live according to wisdom, and I was zealous for the good. My, my soul grappled with wisdom, and my conduct, I was strict. I spread out my hand to the heavens, and I lamented my ignorance of her. I directed my soul to her, and through purification I found her. I gained understanding with her from the first. Therefore, I will not be forsaken. My heart was stirred to seek her. Therefore, I have gained a good possession. The Lord gave me a tongue as my reward, and I will praise him with it. Verse 23, draw near to me, you who are untaught. So he's now talking to future students, and lodge in my school. Remember we talked about this. He had a school in Jerusalem. He had disciples. Lodge in my school. Why do you say you are lacking in these things? And why are your souls very thirsty? I opened my mouth and said, get these things for yourselves without money. Put your neck under the yoke and let your souls receive instruction. It is to be found close by. See with your eyes that I have labored little and found for myself much rest. Get instruction with a large sum of money and silver, and you will gain by it much gold. So he says, look, even if you have to pay for wisdom, which he's giving it freely here, as the ICC does, he says earlier, seek it out for free. But, but even if you have to pay for it, he says, it's more valuable than gold. May, and this is a nice conclusion for our lecture tonight and the conclusion to the book. I couldn't conclude it any, any better. May your soul rejoice in his mercy, and may you not be put to shame when you praise him. Do your work before the appointed time, and in God's time, he will give you your reward. 
Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and to age of ages. Amen. All right, Angela, we're done for tonight with the lecture, but are we going to do question and answer? Yes, we do. Okay. I have two questions here in the, in the box. Um, Sister Michelle was wondering when Sirach was written in relationship to Solomon. I was wondering if he was aware of this book when he asked for wisdom to lead his people. Oh, great. Okay, so it would be good to probably review the lecture from last week. So Solomon, you can date, so Solomon is right around the year 1000. Okay, and this is round numbers. You want to re, be helpful to remember some general numbers here. Abraham, the year 2000 BC. This is general numbers, okay? David and so, uh, Moses in the Exodus, 1500, so 500 years later, the Exodus. Then the uh, time of David and Solomon in the building of the temple, right around the year 1000. And then the Babylonian exile, right around the year 500, is really 587, a little bit before that, but general numbers here. And then we come to the time of this author, who was writing right around somewhere in the realm of about 190 to 180 BC. Okay, right around that period, right in there. And there's some historical markers that make it impossible or very unlikely is written before that or after that. So this is a this is one of the later books of the Old Testament. The only books that are written after this are about stories that happen after this, and that's the stories of the Maccabees. The Maccabean warriors arise after the atrocities that were unleashed upon the people of God in the temple in Jerusalem by Antipas Epiphanes right around 175. And then later on, two decades later, you have the um, Maccabean revolt. Okay, hopefully that answers. So Solomon and this man are, are distanced by right around maybe 800 years. Um, Tom Nally, yes. Could you explain that the fear of the Lord is mentioned many times in the book of Sirach. Can you explain, you know, exactly what he's referring to? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just like you find in the wisdom literature, fearing your parents. It doesn't, it's, this is probably a, a bad English translation. So it doesn't mean to be afraid of, in the sense the way we use the word, and fear in modern English simply means you know, you're afraid of something. I have fear of heights or something like that, you know? But when talking about fear of the Lord or fearing your parents in the Bible, this is an English translation of a concept which means to respect their direction to do what they say. So to fear them, that is, and to act in accord with their words. Be submissive to their direction. Okay? Thank you. Yeah. Um, we had one question that came in right at the beginning. Um, the gentleman, unfortunately, wasn't able to stay, but he um, was planning on watching this later. You mentioned that the book of Sirach was rejected by Luther because it did not fit into his soterology. I'm going to probably butcher that, which makes ah. sense. But I also recall Luther's interest in Christ, or we might say the gospel of Christ. Luther would have been looking for something that points to Christ. So can you speak to typological images or possibilities in the book of Sirach that points? Yeah, to so when I, when I mentioned that last week, I was referring to 2 Maccabees. Uh, 2 Maccabees is, in 2 Maccabees, you hear about Judas Maccabeus going to war, and he, he's victorious in the battle, but when he goes and after the battle, he looks at some of the guys that died. They were some of his own men. 
how this happened. They were they're supposed to be victorious. Their mother. So they went. They went to pick up these dead men to take them back to their families and bury them. And they noticed that in their in their inside their garments they were wearing pagan idolatrous images around their neck. They were wearing idols, talismans, uh, and lucky charms. Okay. And so Judas realizes the way the reason why those individuals died in the battle of his army because they were relying on someone else rather than the Lord. So he immediately takes up a collection among his army and sends it so that they could pray for those who had died in battle and who had died in this horrible way, in a polytheistic pagan way. So he prays for the dead. Okay, so this is something that Luther did not like. So it did not fit into Luther's soteriology, prayers for the dead. That didn't work. And so soteriology means understanding of how salvation works. That's fancy words. So then what does he do? Well, he can't just pick up a book out of the Bible and toss it. People aren't going to go well along with that one very well. Well, Luther had something that would help him, and that was Jerome when he translated the Bible into Latin. Now, it was already there in Latin, but he fixed up the translation that was around and made some fresh cop translations of some of the books. So that translation in Latin that comes from Jerome called the Vulgate, most people are aware of, when he did that, in order to do some fresh translation work from the Hebrew, he had to go study Hebrew. He knew Greek. He spoke Latin. That was the language of the time. And he'd studied Greek. He was educated. But when it came to translating the Hebrew books of the Bible, he had probably didn't speak Hebrew. He didn't know him. So he moved to Bethlehem. And he lived in a cave there in Bethlehem, not far from the cave where Jesus was born. And he studied Hebrew from the local Jews. Now, these are Jews who have rejected Jesus and are living among Christians. So they've got a lot of anti-Christian apologetics in their holsters. And so, unfortunately, there's a few places in Jerome where you'll find some of that anti-Christian polemics that were floating around among the Jews at the time. As he's studying Hebrew from them, he's picking up on some of this stuff. And so one of the things he does is he suggests that there's really two categories of literature among the Jews. There's the primary category, and then there's this secondary category, a secondary, a deuterocanonical section. Those are the seven books Luther got rid of. Now, Luther was able to get rid of them easily, at least somewhat easily, because he could point to Jerome and say, look, even Jerome, the great scholar, said these were secondary. And so he was able to, since Second Maccabees is in that section, able to say, look, let's just leave that out. Uh, and so then you have Luther's Bible, and from there on out, you have many crossing Bibles with that shorter canon, which is following the Jewish canon of the time. And where did Jerome get this? He's looking at the canon of the local Jews who are teaching him Hebrew, and he's saying, wait a minute, they don't have some of these books. Well, but as you look at the books that Luther threw out, or the Jews later on did not have in their canon, you find that this is fully Jewish literature, the book of Sirach, the book of Tobit, First and Second Maccabees, you find references to this literature in the rabbinic writings. You find you find fragments of these scrolls in the Dead Sea Scrolls, in uh, in archaeological finds in ancient synagogues. We know that this literature continued among the Jews, but the Judaism that comes out after Christianity is a very different kind of Judaism that is there before Christ. 
Unfortunately, a lot of people make a confusion. This is just, well, just continued on in Christianity kind of is an offshoot. <laughs> Christianity is continues and is the fulfillment of and is in perfect conjunction with Israel, the Old Testament. Judaism of today is an offshoot of that period of Jews who did not accept Jesus. Many of the Jews accepted Christ. Many of them didn't. And so those that didn't began to form another kind of religion that was independent of the temple and sacrifice. How do you how do you have Judaism without the temple? Well, you can't unless you have another kind of Judaism. The temple is gone after AD 70. And so Judaism that has not accepted Christ begins to take on a whole other form and has developed in another way, and that's the modern Judaism today. Okay, and that's unfortunately the Judaism that Jerome was listening to, and some of the Judaism that you'll hear today. This is not to be anti-Semitic. The original Christians were all Jews, and there are still many Christian descendants in the Holy Land who are descendants of those original Christian converts. Thank you so much, Father Sebastian, for that wonderful, wonderful study. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.